I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look at the Bible, but rather than viewing it through the lens of good versus evil, we shift our paradigm and we begin to look at it through the lens of life versus death. For the past four weeks, we've been going through what I call the Noah cycle. I think that as I go through this, that you're able to see and that you'll likely agree. If you don't, let me know. That the, the cycle is something that we see all through scripture. It begins with judgment, it goes to new creation, then it goes to covenant and sacrifice, relationship building, then it goes to broken relationship and returns back to judgment again. If we look through scripture, we'll see this pattern modeled in so many different stories. We're going to run through a few of those real quick and examine this pattern as it exists outside of the story of Noah. If this pattern only appears in the story of Noah, we've got a problem because it, it tells us about Noah. It doesn't tell us anything about ourselves. But if this applies in a larger scope, it gives us something that we can look at and grasp hold of and then deeper understanding of what's going on in each of these other stories. So a couple of examples. We've got Israel in Egypt. It begins with Egypt placed under judgment and Israel redeemed and brought out of that judgment, same way as the world was judged and Noah was brought out. Israel then becomes a new creation through the the creation of a nation as a distinct people group separate from the Egypt that they had been part of before. They enter into a covenant with a sacrifice at Mount Sinai with the God. Israel then behaves shamefully and enters into uh, sin with the golden calf. And then judgment is placed on the sinners through plagues and through uh, judgment through their brothers. And righteous, the Levites, are then redeemed up out of that, and then the covenant begins anew. Then we've got Israel, when they enter the land. They enter the land, and as they enter, they act as instruments of judgment on the land. They become not just a nation of of people, but at that time, their new creation of nation with a land, with borders. They renew the covenant on Mount Gerizim and Mount Eval through sacrifice, and then Israel begins to act shamefully and sinfully. They break the covenant with the father after the death of Joshua, and then in the book of Judges we read that they are repeatedly judged. The judgment comes upon them, and we get a bunch of mini vignettes in Judges of this same pattern occurring. Israel as a kingdom. Israel is determined to place a king over top of them. So the first king is an unrighteous king who receives judgment and is replaced with a righteous king. The righteous king brings redemption and new creation through the unification of all of the tribes into one nation, one kingdom. A covenant is made with the righteous king and a sacrifice is made. The king then behaves shamefully 
staying home while the army was out, which then leads to sin, adultery, and murder. And this then brings judgment of a civil war upon the kingdom. After that, when that is done, then the cycle begins again with Solomon, and then a new creation as the kingdom is once again split after Solomon, and so on and so forth. The, the, the cycle just keeps rolling. In the New Testament, we see this pattern again in several places, which is hard to find because there's so little narrative in the New Testament. But in the New Testament, one, one example of this that we can look at is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira had been judged as being able to enter into the covenant of the community through the sacrifice of Yeshua. They became that new creation in Yeshua. However, they then behaved shamefully by keeping back a portion of some that they had promised to the community. And then they acted sinfully by lying about it, which caused that relationship to then break. And finally, judgment was brought upon their heads and they both died in the same day. Uh, this cycle, once you have the lenses for it, you'll begin to see it and notice it all throughout Scripture. And it's really cool because each time you see it, you get a different take on it. The cycle provides some snapshots that we can examine and understand the underlying theme of each of those areas. But then they each discuss it in such a different way that the, the discussion morphs each time. And I think you'll see that today, because we're going to be rediscussing the topic of judgment, which we talked about several weeks ago. But this time we're going to look at it from a different perspective than we did last time, because the text, as it's approaching this topic of judgment, gives us different things to focus on in relationship to judgment. So that's what we're going to be discussing today. It's going to be, in some ways, similar to the story of the flood, in many ways, completely different, because the text itself is different. So, let's go ahead and open our Bibles and read Genesis 11, and then we will talk about this. Genesis chapter 11. And all the earth had one language and one speech. And it came to be as they set out from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens, and make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over all the face of the earth. Then Hashem came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And Hashem said, Look, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. And now they are not going to be withheld from doing whatever they plan to do. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they do not understand one another's speech. And Hashem scattered them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. That is why its name was called Babel, because there Hashem confused the language of all the earth, and from there Hashem scattered them over the face of all the earth. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was a hundred years old and brought forth a parkshad, two years after the flood. And after he brought forth a parkshad, Shem lived five hundred years and brought forth sons and daughters. And a parkshad lived thirty-five years and brought forth Shelach. And after he brought forth Shelach, a parkshad lived four hundred and three years and brought forth sons and daughters. And Shelach lived thirty years and brought forth Aver. And after he brought forth Aver, Shelach lived four hundred and three years and brought forth sons and daughters. And Aver lived thirty-four years and brought forth Peleg. And after he brought forth Peleg, Aver lived four hundred and thirty years and brought forth sons and daughters. And Peleg lived thirty years and brought forth Reu. 
And after he brought forth Reu, Peleg lived two hundred and nine years, and brought forth sons and daughters. And Reu lived thirty-two years, and brought forth Serug. And after he brought forth Serug, Reu lived two hundred and seven years, and brought forth sons and daughters. And Serug lived thirty years, and brought forth Nahor. And after he brought forth Nahor, Serug lived two hundred years, and brought forth sons and daughters. And Nahor lived twenty-nine years, and brought forth Terach. And after he brought forth Terach, Nahor lived one hundred and nineteen years, and brought forth sons and daughters. And Terach lived seventy years, and brought forth Avram, Nahor, and Haran. And this is the genealogy of Terach. Terach brought forth Avram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran brought forth Lot. And Haran died before his father Terach in the land of his birth of Urukazdin. And Avram and Nahor took wives. The name of Avram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Yiscah. And Sarai was barren, and she had no children. And Terach took his son Avram, and his grandson Lot, and his son Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Avram's wife. And they went out with them from Ur-Kazdim to go down to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terach came to be two hundred and five years, and Terach died in Haran. So the the last chapter that we read in Genesis was really boring, right? Genesis 10. And then the last half of this chapter, in fact, a little over half, is again really boring. Genealogies, descendants from Noah. Well, one of the things that you begin to realize as you go through Scripture is that these various genealogies, they, they are repetitive. Repetition is a very useful tool, something I talked about back in uh, Genesis 5. But unfortunately, this is one of those useful tools that can sometimes lull us to sleep. And we have to resist that desire to just turn our brains off when we get to these repetitive sections. Because we find that in these repetitive sections, many times the pattern is broken at certain points along the way. And in that, those moments when the pattern is broken of this repetition, we get a snapshot of something that's actually really important. So, if we turn back to Genesis 10 and look through the Table of Nations, we'll recognize that there are two primary places, there's several places, but there's two primary ones where the repetition is broken and a small vignette or story is told of one of the characters who is a descendant. The first one was in the Descendants of Canaan, when it gets to Nimrod, and it highlights a connection to the previous story of Noah. Canaan, the cursed one, from this cursed one comes this character Nimrod, the guy who founds Shinar, the guy who founds Babylon, the guy who founds Assyria, you know, he's a man of war, so on and so forth. It connects us back to the story of Noah and the vineyard and the curse on Canaan and expounds upon that. And as we discussed last week, it gives us this picture of, of Cain, the one who was cursed from Adam and Eve, the lineage that is then recounted after him. The second one that we want to look at in Genesis chapter 10 is the story of Peleg. Now, it really doesn't say a whole lot about Peleg, but it does say that it was in his days that the earth was divided. The second break provides a connection to the following narrative, the the Tower of Babel, the, the earth being divided once again. And so the genealogy of chapter 10 gives us that connective tissue between chapters 9 and chapter 11. And it gives us also a bit of a timeline for the events that occur in chapter 11, right? Nimrod was third generation from Noah. Peleg was fifth generation from Noah. So if we go with the Masoretic text, the text that most of our Bibles are based on, and we do a little bit of math, we'll find that there's around a total of 101 years from the flood to the birth of Peleg. 
So in that time of that 101 years, Nimrod was born. And then within the course of Peleg's lifetime, Babylon was founded, and a tower was started, and all mankind was split. Only 101 years. That's not a lot of time. And it doesn't seem like there'd be enough time for a whole lot of people to exist at that time. What was it? A, you know, a society of 1,500 people out there building this tower? And this introduces a, a conundrum to us. What exactly is going on here? Well, there's a, not a problem per se, but there is a, an issue that needs to be approached. And that is that the Masoretic text is not the only ancient recounting of this timeline. There are other sources that recount this, the same series of events. And unfortunately, those other sources disagree. One of those being the Septuagint. If we read the Septuagint, we'll find that there is something different. In seven of the generations from Noah to Abraham, a hundred years is added in each of those seven generations, which gives an extra 700 years between Noah and Abraham. These additional years then add for us or create for us a total of 400 years between the flood and the split of Babel, rather than simply 101 years. That's a significant difference, and that can allow for a significant population explosion to make this a really significant event. So now we're faced with the conundrum. Which text is correct, right? We want to know one over the other. We, we want to have our timeline down just right, right? If we don't have that, well, what, can we, what can we trust in? Well, if we look at the Masoretic text and we examine where it came from, the, the earliest copies of the Masoretic text date back to around 980 with the Aleppo Codex. There is the possibility that this text was corrupted, because the Septuagint was written in around 200 BC, or BCE, depending on your nomenclature. So 200 years before our Messiah walked this earth, the Septuagint was translated, or the Hebrew text was translated into Greek, which is the Septuagint, which we have some very ancient copies of. And so a thought has been proposed by some that the Masoretic text was a corruption, and that the earlier text contained the truth of it. However, if it's a corruption, it's a very early corruption. How do I know that? Well, because there are other ancient texts that recount this. There are these documents called Targums, two of them specifically. Uh, targums are a Aramaic translation of the Hebrew, and they, they tend to have a little more commentary as well as a strict translation within the, the words of them, and we'll talk about Targums in a couple other places and the ways that they read. The Targums themselves aren't scripture, but they do give us a, a view or an insight into many first century thoughts of what was running through the minds of people at that time. So, for example, Targum Pseudo-Jonathan was written around the time of the first century. The author is thought to be Jonathan ben Uziel. Uh, he was a student of Hillel the Elder, and Hillel the Elder died in the year 10, 10 CE, AD, whichever you use. The second one is Onkelos, Targum Onkelos, and it was written around the same time by a man who converted to Judaism, who spoke Aramaic, and he wanted it in his own tongue. And so that was written, it's thought, between the years 35 and 105 CE, so around the time that the gospel was being written, was the same time that the Targum Onkelos was being written. So 
both of these texts, both of these Targums, agree with the Masoretic text in this. The hundred years weren't there. It, it didn't happen. That what we read in the Masoretic text, what we read in our Bibles today, is in fact correct. If we look at the Masoretic text, Targum Onclos, Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, all of them agree. They all say the same thing. However, there are more disagreements than simply the Septuagint. It's not just the Septuagint that says this other, this other way. If we look at the Samaritan Pentateuch, Samaritan Pentateuch was a version of the Torah that was written by the Northern Kingdom sometime after Babylonian captivity. It's thought that it was written anywhere between 432 and 122 BCE. It has those extra hundred years like the Septuagint. Add to this that also Josephus, the famous first century historian, Jewish historian that we hear so much about, he also has these extra hundred years in his writings. Oh, so that leaves us ooh, with this conundrum still standing. Three texts say one thing. Three texts say the other. The ones that say the other give us an extra 700 years of world history that doesn't exist in the texts that we're familiar with. So the natural question is, can we find a tiebreaker? I asked the same question, and... So I thought, hey, why not look to the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls were first century. The Essene community, they had a lot of insight. They have a lot of copies of Hebrew texts. Let's look at what they have here. And unfortunately, the Genesis 11 is absent from the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have a large chunks of Genesis, but we got to remember they were in scrolls. It appears as though Genesis 11 was on a part of a scroll that brought it away. If you look through what was recovered of Genesis in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are large chunks missing, and they seem to be fairly regular. So it would seem as though that was part of the unrecoverable texts in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we don't get a tiebreaker. So we've got three for one viewpoint, three for the other. Now, I know that when I started this experiment, I made the point that I was going to avoid debatable matters and trivia. There's, there's plenty of other channels, teachers out there covering the debatable matters and trivia. We're doing our own thing here, right? So this seems to be a debatable matter, obviously. Uh, trivia, who cares if there's an extra 700 years of world history that doesn't exist? Uh, how does that affect me today? Well, there, there's a couple issues here, and I think that it can uh, help us with some, some of our own understanding on our own application. First of all, I've only ever seen one other teacher, and I'm not even sure that that person would call themselves a teacher, even approach this topic in a wide audience. Perhaps there are others out there who have talked about this, but they're not in the, the circles that I tend to follow. And so I think it's something that really needs to be addressed. You know, let's have the, let's at least ask the question, even if we don't find an answer. And maybe there's a fear of being labeled a heretic or something along those lines, um, casting doubt onto the reliability of the scripture. Uh, you know, there's any number of reasons why a person wouldn't talk about this. Uh, maybe it's, it's settled in their own mind. This way is the right way and that way is the wrong way. So, hey, well, why even talk about it? Why even bring it up? I don't agree. I think that as students of this fantastic book, we should be aware of all possibilities. And when the answer isn't clear, we need to hold the multiple possibilities loosely and, and treat them with kid gloves, as you will. You know, the familiar, maybe not so familiar, idiom. We need to be aware 
of those, right? Awareness is one of those things that uh, helps us to understand Scripture and to, to interpret it. Another reason I bring this up is because with just a little more information, some more background, I think that this topic can help us springboard us, if you will, into something that is vitally important to us. So let's get that background, and then we'll return to this, and we'll, we'll come back to this topic. So from the beginning of this experiment, I've spoken on the topic of themes in Scripture, and ways to track down the patterns of Scripture based on those themes. And once again, we are not disappointed. The narrative of Genesis 11, especially verses 1 through 9, the, the narrative portions, they are packed with thematic elements that we can then trace backwards to get the foundational understanding of and then trace forward to see how other places in scripture comment on these exact same things. The chapter opens with the entire world being of one language and one speech. Literally, it leads of one lip and one words. And then it says that they set out from the east and found the valley in the land of Shinar. Shinar is a word that means two rivers. Once again, we get a conundrum in the text. Scripture specifically says that they set out from the east in order to arrive in Shinar. Hmm. Well, we know where Shinar is. Shinar is Babylon. We'll read that later in Scripture. And then the two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, they come together in the land later known as Babylon. In fact, in the Hebrew, Babylon is Babel. The Tower of Babel is in English, if they were to translate it consistently, it would be the Tower of Babylon, not just Babel. We have this conundrum. If men set out from the east and reached Babel, where was the ark that came to rest? Is it in the mountains of Ararat? Because Ararat's just a bit north. It's in modern-day Turkey. It would be to the west of Babylon. So does this mean that perhaps the ark was somewhere in the Himalayas, somewhere in China, somewhere in India. Maybe. Maybe it is. Maybe, maybe that's where the Ark is. Again, these conflicting ideas, the, the, the way that the text is worded would make it seem as though they traveled from the East to get to Babylon. However, the word Kedem in Hebrew, Kedem, it's the word for East, but that word also has another meaning. That word can also mean from ancient, or from the beginning, or from old. Perhaps it was that the people set out from the beginning, and then settled in Shinar. Again, I'm merely posing an opinion that can help to make the text to make some sense when we arrive at this, this conundrum. And the thing is, is that when we, we look at scripture, and we see this word, east, as I mentioned way back in Genesis 2 and 3, Sometimes east can be a direction that is moving away from God, right? Exile. Adam and Eve were exiled to the east, and an angel was placed in the east of Eden to keep them there. In Genesis 4, Cain was exiled, and he settled in the east. When Lot split from Abraham, Lot went to the east. And we read right there in the text in Genesis 13 that he was not considering the, the people in the east their culture and their own sinfulness when he settled among them. When Abraham has sons with Keturah, after Sarai passes away, he sends them all to the east, away from his son Isaac. In fact, Ishmael himself was also sent to the south and to the east, is where he ends up. Jacob runs when he runs away from Esau, 
after the, the blessing is stolen from him, he runs to the east, to the people of the east. However, being in the east isn't always a bad thing. When it comes to the tabernacle, being on the east is a symbol of honor. It is uh, elevation. You had Moses and Aaron on the east of the tabernacle. You had Judah on the east of the tabernacle. It put them right there at the doorway to the tabernacle. So, east isn't always farthest away from God. Sometimes east is a place of honor. And then other times, east is uh, it's just east. We've got to be very careful when we handle this. I would try to force east to always be, to mean something more than just, hey, they, they went right. Usually the story is understood that the people were moving further away from God, that they were becoming wicked in what they did. And that's true. But perhaps the people themselves didn't see it that way. Perhaps in this use of the word coming from the east, perhaps we can catch a glimpse of what the people thought they were doing. What was it that Eve did in Genesis 3? She sought to be like God, right? She sought to elevate herself to the place of God. Could it be that these people coming from the east are seeking to elevate themselves to the place of God? They are, in essence, living out the humanist ideal. No gods, no masters. Man is the master of his own fate, if you will. Perhaps that's what it's trying to get at. They're, they're acting defiantly and challenging God. Twice the command had been given already by God, fill the earth. And yet we find them here purposefully congregating, not filling the earth. And it's, they state specifically in verse 4, if we don't do this, we're going to be scattered all over the face of the earth. We'll actually end up fulfilling the command that God gave us. So let's purposefully not keep the command because that doesn't seem wise in our own minds. So in the Tower of Babel, it wasn't a sin in which men were attempting to hide what they were doing from God or from others. The Tower of Babel was a defiance, a rebelliousness, insubordinate attempt of man to replace God with man, to elevate man into the heavens. Perhaps even to elevate man to a place where the judgment of water that may come later, they could escape it. They could take men to the top of this tower, and regardless of how much water comes, can't touch us, God. We have found a way to escape your judgment. So their attempt was to ascend to the heavens, to take the place of God, to become then the arbiter themselves of good and evil. And that is, as we read in many other places of scripture, it becomes the root of sin. We read a similar account in Ezekiel 28, 12-19. I suggest you go read those. The, the verses themselves are addressed to the king of Tyre, but they are commonly thought to be speaking of the adversary, Hasatan. Please go read those. I'm not going to do that here. That's some homework for you. But this passage says that the individual, this individual exalted his heart in his beauty, that he corrupted wisdom for the sake of shining. So even though this passage is addressed to the king of Tyre, it speaks very directly to the addressees having existed in Eden, of him being a Keruv, a Keruvim, one of the angels that dwells in the heavenly places, of him being filled with light and beauty and walking up and down in the midst. All language that we've seen before, speaking of Hasatan. If 
this passage is addressed to the king of Tyre, though. How do we how do we understand that? It, what? Why is it? Talk, how can it be talking to Satan if it's talking to a specific person? There's a literary technique that's used throughout Scripture called synecdoche. And synecdoche is is a literary device in which you take a part of something and then use it as a representative of a whole or of some other idea. So we have common synecdoche type phrases in our own world, idioms, phrases such as a helping hand. Well, that refers to a hired worker, not just to his hand that helps. We use the word wave to describe an entire ocean, or bread and butter to describe the basic living, the basic needs of life, the necessity of life. We use the word sails to refer to ships, gray beards to refer to old men, suits represent businessmen, Boots represent soldiers, and so on. The scripture is full of the use of synecdoche, and we have to be aware of it when we see it. Otherwise, we begin to make some really awful judgments in how to understand scripture. Well, if we understand this passage as talking about Hasatan, but using synecdoche to the king of Tyre to, to draw that connection, we can look in other places when we can see the exact same thing occurring. Isaiah 14 being an example. Again, a passage directly addressed to the king of Babylon this time. But as we read it, we see that it's highly likely that this passage is using synecdoche to refer to Hasatan as well. Go read it. Isaiah 14, 11 through 15. Read all of Isaiah 14, as, as a matter of fact. It's really cool. In some translations in that passage, though, between 11 and 14, we'll, we will find the name Lucifer, or Daystar. In the Hebrew, the word is Hallel. Uh, it's one that's used only once in all of Scripture, and it simply means one who shines, or the shining one. I don't think that the passage is specifically naming Hasatan. It's giving us a title, the shining one. However, when translators translated the Latin Vulgate, they saw this title, and they understood it to mean morning star. Well, what's the morning star? Well, that's Venus, of course. And what's the name for Venus in Latin? Lucifer. So they said, oh, it's Lucifer. And they put that name in there. And today we now have <laughs> a whole subculture built around this translation from Hallel in Hebrew through Latin into uh, our common understanding. It's not to say that some have taken that name upon themselves and Luciferians and so on and so forth, but I don't think it's a proper name for the adversary, for the evil one. We do know, however, that this character in Revelation is called out as the serpent from the garden who fell from the heaven. Why did he fall from the heaven? Well, if we read all of these passages together, including what Yeshua's comment about Hasatan, I saw him falling from the heavens, we understand that his root sin was pride, was seeking to elevate himself to the place of God, seeking to rise to the top of the mountain. In Isaiah 14, we read, you ascended the sides of the north. Well, again, north has more than one meaning. It means Zaphon is the Hebrew word for it. And Zaphon, Mount Zaphon, is an actual place. In the Assyrian religions north of Israel, Mount Zaphon was the equivalent of Mount Olympus in Greek mythology. It was the place where the gods existed. So this king of Babylon, being spoken of through Synecdoche, the adversary, attempted to ascend the mountain of the gods of another religion. 
to place himself, to replace the God of Israel, the God of creation. There's a whole lot of commentary going on here about this character known as Hasatan. But he allowed his own beauty, his own splendor, to feed his pride, his own ability, then overcame his wisdom. He lost his fear of Hashem, and he paid the price for it. He will pay the price for it. Not only was pride the fall of Hasatan, if we go back to Genesis 3, we'll find out that it was pride that Hasatan exploited in the garden. In Genesis 3, verse 5, he says, For Elohim knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes shall be opened, you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be like God. He's appealing to Eve's pride right there. You can ascend the mountain. You can know good and evil. You can become your own judge, your own arbiter. It's this pride that's in us that convinces us that we ourselves, we are something special. And that we ourselves, we're the only ones that can correctly discern good and evil. We can correctly discern how the Bible is read, and we can be very confident in our own understanding translations. Even when we change our mind later, our new understanding, that is the proper understanding, and all others, they're heretics, they're, they are wrong. It is pride that is anathema to the God of Israel. Those who operate from a place of pride will be brought low. Pride comes before the fall. <laughs> if you have pride in your heart, you will be judged. There's a lot of verses that speak about pride. I'm going to put them up on the screen, just a few of them. Go read those. Proverbs 8, 13, Psalm 101, verse 5, Isaiah 25, 11, and Obadiah 1, 3 through 4. Last week, we spoke of shame and the sin that accompanies it and the preoccupation that we have with our own shame. And I think, unfortunately, too many times it's the shame in our own hearts that causes us to react with pride. Because we don't want to feel as though we've done something wrong. We don't want others to look at us as though we've done something wrong. And so we take pride in what should be shameful. We attempt to avoid that pain that shame gives us. And so we justify and we overwrite our shame by morphing it into pride. Because we as humans, it's in our wiring system to avoid pain, to avoid things that disturb us. And when that thing is in us, the path of least resistance is simply to say, yeah, I'm good. Did you hear that? I'm good. My shame is acceptable. My shame is to be celebrated. My shame isn't shame at all. In fact, it is the good thing. The way you're acting, your way, that's the shameful thing. Newsflash here. You are not good. There is none good. No, not one. You are not good. You. You, I'm speaking to you. You are not good. We all think that we are in a good place, right? We love God. We love our neighbors. And we keep God's word. We keep his Torah. All those commands. We keep his word. 
and doing that, that makes us good, or, or at least better than those people out there. Better than those who are still in their sin. Are you, though? Because we all have areas inside of ourselves where we don't want God or others to peek too closely, those dark corners that we would prefer simply remain dark. When we arrive before God in a state of humility, He'll break us. Because it's humility that allows us to realize those who are redeemed are in fact the worst of sinners, including myself, including yourself. Being redeemed doesn't make you a better person. It just makes you acceptable before God. There's a big difference there. Being redeemed doesn't make you good. Yeshua didn't come to make men good. He came to give men life. Don't pretend that you don't suffer from pride or that you've got humility all figured out. <laughs> the moment you find yourself rejoicing in your humility, you have failed to be humble. We have to work to identify within ourselves those places of pride and, and seek to change them. And with God's help, you can. So while it was the pride of man that caused him to seek to supplant God, while it was the pride of the adversary to seek to supplant God, it was technology that gave man the means to accomplish this task. In verse 1, it, it spoke of unity in language. In verse 4, speaks of unity in purpose and thought. In verse 3, speaks of brick and mortar, a new technology that had been developed that will then allow them to build massive structures. And it's specifically this that God sees when he sees the tower, right? He says, oh man, they are one people, they have one language, their communication is easy, and they, they have created technology, they have the ability to create. If I am correct in my assertion that one of the primary ways that man is in the image of God, using language as a creative or destructive force, then a unified language of all mankind would perhaps multiply this creative ability towards whatever end man chose. Two weeks ago, we talked about man's default setting as evil. And a unified mankind in this default evil uh, it will lead man to a very dark place. Unity itself isn't all bad. Like nearly everything, it can be used to serve God or it can be used to serve evil. There is a proper place for unity and there's a proper way to exercise unity. In our world today, we are told that we are all part of the brotherhood of man and that we are all of the same species and that we should have no separation between us. We are shown images of the Earth's surface and with captions that read, God didn't create borders. We're told that it's our separation, in fact, and our differences as various nations, as various people groups, that is the cause of war, it's the cause of evil, and that we must, in fact, unify as humanity. We must unify as individuals, regardless of our ideologies. We must unify as nations. 
We even have organizations working towards unifying all mankind together. Our great nation, the United States, was to be a melting pot from all nations, come together as humans in a celebration of humans. And it's only by accomplishing this level of unity behind a humanitarian ideal that can lead to everlasting peace. Right? Go watch Star Trek. Fact is, is that that'll never work though. Any appearance of something like this working, it is. It's a facade. It's, it's, it's a temporary state of affairs. Because it's impossible for us to meld together in our humanity. Because we are evil and dark creatures. We, we can't maintain unity behind any sort of ideal. Even a humanistic one. And that's what humanity had at Babylon at the Tower of Babel. They had a unity of purpose. Humanity had elevated themselves to the place of God. No language barrier, no difference in purpose, technology to accomplish their goal. And that's what the powers that, that be would have us to pursue. Global unity. One banner, one purpose. The glorification of mankind. We have the technology. Every moment, science draws us closer to unification. The language barrier that once existed is ceasing to exist once again. Communication is imminently possible, regardless of one's language. If we look at the world around us, this is what we see. Technology, once again, uniting mankind behind the ideal of the humanists. Humans can be God. Humans can define good and evil. All we have to do is put all of our differences aside, unite behind this human ideal. Because gods separate us, right? We've got various religions, so those only tend to separate and to keep different. We don't want that. We want to unite. We want to bring together what gods split. Oh, where have we heard that before? Deuteronomy 32.8 says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. True and lasting unity can be accomplished, but not through a humanistic ideal, not uniting behind this banner of people being awesome. The unity that is described by Scripture is a unity that takes place behind the leadership of Yeshua, our Messiah. One king, one nation, unified together for the glory and honor of God, not our own. The glory and honor of Hashem. A unity of purpose, that purpose being the realization of His kingdom here on earth. Oh, we cannot allow ourselves to be enticed by this ideal of unity to all mankind under any human or even an inhuman government. Doing so is a unity in error, and it's the same thing as when Israel was unified in their fear of the inhabitants of the land after they sent those spies back and they brought back an evil report. It was a unity that led to death like lemmings off of a cliff. We have to avoid the wrong form of unity. Being united in error leads to death. We have to unite behind one thing, and that's the banner 
of Hashem. That's under the kingship of Yeshua. And that's in the kingdom of God coming here to earth. So as we move on, we have a, another symbol introduced to us, a symbol that is used all throughout Scripture, and that is the symbol of Babylon. As I've already pointed out, in the English there's a distinction that is made between the Tower of Babel and then later the nation of Babylon. But in the Hebrew there's no such distinction. It is Babel in Hebrew. And Shinar is also another way of speaking of Babylon. In fact, Ur the Chaldees is another way of speaking of Babylon, something that we see at the very end of this chapter as Abraham comes out of Ur the Chaldees. So the word Babel itself means confusion or mixing. And as we spoke of in the beginning of the Noah cycle, it's the mixing together of those things which shouldn't be mixed. What's it called when you mix together things that shouldn't be mixed? Unity. Multiple things being brought together into one, right? Babel also becomes the picture of man corrupting the earth. Because man corrupted the earth and God in turn corrupted the earth in response. In so doing, he mixed things that were not to be mixed. The waters above and the waters below. The land that had been separated from the waters had once again covered with water. But now we're given a symbol that's used all throughout Scripture in so many ways to speak of those who mix or join together those things that shouldn't be mixed. Babylon. The people who mix together things that should be kept separate. Babylon. Those people who are opposed to the natural order. And we saw this earlier in the passage in Isaiah 14, that passage that was addressed specifically to the king of Babylon, right? But there's many other places in, ba- in Scripture where we see Babylon used, even in times when there is no literal Babylon. In 1 Peter 5.13, he speaks to those people who are still in Babylon, long after Babylon has ceased to exist. There's no Babylon in the world at that time. Revelation 14.8 speaks of Babylon as the nation who causes other nations to drink of the wine of her whoring, as we talked last week about Hosea, the mixing together of various nations. It is a metaphor of mixing improperly. Uh, Revelation 17.5 speaks of Babylon as the mother of whores and the great abomination. And it's because of Babylon all the nations of the earth will taste the wrath of God. Babylon, who preaches this false unity, pride and abomination, the mixing of things that aren't to be mixed. Babylon, that great whore, it begins here. It begins at the tower. First great sin of mankind after the flood. The last great enemy of the people of God. Babylon, the place of exile. The place where Judah is sent as their judgment. You want to mix gods, you want to mix peoples, you want to not keep yourselves holy and sanctified and separate. All right, go experience Babylon for a while. Tell us how you think after that. Babylon will try to convince you that there should be no separation at all. The sexes, the nations, holidays, worship of gods, more, more, and more. Babylon will present a false unity that has no value. Because that unity in itself is an abomination. We can't fall for that false unity. Because there's only one unity to be found, and that's unity under our king. 
And so this is where I will return back to where I began. Right? Remember we talked about the extra 700 years? So I'm going to pose a question. How many years ago was the earth created? Well, there are many out there who will give you a very definite answer to this question. In fact, the Jewish calendar itself gives a very definite answer to this question. But as we saw, the possibility, I'm not saying it's right, I'm not saying that it is accurate. I'm saying that the possibility exists that our confidence in just exactly how long ago the world began may but not be entirely warranted. And that's the trap of being sold out to a single interpretation or a single understanding of this wonderful book. Placing our knowledge, our knowledge and understanding as infallible and true, everyone else's as false, that's pride, right? If our understanding is not faulty, everyone else's is faulty. We've got that head knowledge. It does nothing but mislead. It leads to pride. So, let's find out what Paul did, the apostle to the Gentiles, right? The one who was to go to preach to all of the world the coming of this kingdom, or at least to kick it off. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2, he says, Concerning food offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks that he knows something, he does not yet know as he should. If you think that you know how to pronounce the name, that you know the shape of the earth, that you know just how long ago creation happened, you don't know as you should. What does he say earlier in 1 Corinthians in chapter 2? Paul makes a statement of what we can know. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with excellence of speech or with wisdom, proclaiming to you the witness of God, for I resolved not to know any matter among you except Yeshua, Messiah, and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My only knowledge, the only thing that I know for certain, is that Yeshua died on the cross, that he is king. Everything else, humility is the order of the day. Weakness, trembling, fear. As I'm saying this, I'm saying it all to myself, because I know the pride that's in my own heart. In fact, I probably don't know the pride that's in my own heart. <laughs> um, if I think I do know the pride in my own heart, I'm probably deluding myself. But I do know that siren's call to know things. The siren's call to understand. And I have to learn to let that go for the sake of love. To, for the sake of building up. Too many times we, I, I use my knowledge simply as a coping mechanism to fend off the unknown to gain some sort of comfort in the surety of the world. And many times I use it to become better than others by knowing more than they do, knowing different than they do. And I use it to gain confidence in my own abilities. And knowledge itself has become a huge source of pride in my life. But the improper use of knowledge then dictates that my way is the right way 
and therefore your way is wrong. If you are wrong, what fellowship can we possibly have? Especially if you won't even acknowledge that my way might be right. Paul, he had it so right. Knowledge serves us so little but to puff up. Now many of you out there are going, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. My people die for lack of knowledge. Yeah. The knowledge of intimacy and relationship. Because knowledge in scripture isn't just these head facts. Knowledge is an intimate covenant knowing of another. So can we ever know anything is the follow-up question. And yeah, we can know Yeshua. We can know the resurrection. We can know that God will be true to his word, even if I don't understand it. Even if I'm sure that it means something else entirely. Even if I have the details conceptualized completely wrong for how this world works, it's not on my knowledge to get me before God. It's not on my knowledge to make me acceptable before him. He won't fail. He'll keep his truth. He will keep his word according to true knowledge. Even if I'm wrong in my knowledge, it doesn't change my standing before him. And so many people out there will convince you otherwise, that if you don't know the way I know, you are heretics. You are wrong. That's such a bad, bad place to be. So many doctrines, so many people build their standing before God based on specific doctrines. One that I grew up with was the once saved, always saved, predestination thought. If you don't believe this, then you're not right with God. What? <laughs> what? Really? My place before God is based off of something I know? Something more beyond Yeshua and Him crucified? No, 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 not at all. The true knowledge, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of intimacy and relationship and covenant with him should never bring us to pride, but should rather slay us in humility. Because pride is the very root of this first sin. This, this first sin, even in the garden, this first sin here in Babylon. Because pride convinces that we know it, whatever it is, and that we have it just right and that all others are wrong, that we have correctly figured out good versus evil. There's only one thing that we have to know that we have right. And that's the one thing that unifies all of us who are believers in Yeshua. Yeshua died for my sins, my filthy dirtiness and sinful life that has been defining my life since my birth has been taken care of. That's it. That is the knowledge that unifies. Son of God, the Son of Man, came to earth, died shamefully, painfully, and gory, just so that I could have the hope of relationship with the Creator whom I have betrayed repeatedly. The King I have rebelled against time and time again. What pride is there to be found in that? That should wreck us. Are we going to find pride in the fact that we reached out and grabbed the hand that was trying to save us. We didn't do anything. He reached out for us first. Had he not reached out, we're dead. 
What pride is to be found in this, in this rebellious heart, in this sinful life? This knowledge should wreck us continually. There's no pride to be found in this, in our lives. And what pride there may be to be found in here, it's not our pride. It's not pride in anything in us. It's pride only in our God. Instead, humility must be our response. A humility that leads us to serve others, to serve mankind. Yeshua himself demonstrated this humility for us. He demonstrated service for us. Not to make our name great, not to elevate ourselves to the heavens. Ooh, did you catch that? Our service isn't to elevate us to the heavens. No, our service isn't to make us great or to make us acceptable before God. Our service is to make Him great. To make Him the center of attention. To make Him the only one worth doing anything for. James 4, 6 says, But He gives great grace. Because of this, He says, God resists the proud, but gives favor to the humble. Luke eighteen fourteen. I say to you, this man went down to his house declared right rather than the other. For everyone who is exalting himself shall be humbled, and he who is humbling himself shall be exalted. First John 2.16 it says, Because all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not of the Father, but of the world. Pride is the very first thing that invades our hearts as humans, and it's the very last thing to leave. It is so easy to believe that we are right with God. We ourselves have it right. We have conceptualized everything correctly. We've examined every jot and tittle, and we now know. What does that do for you? It is so easy to act in pride. Pride is our natural setting. Pride is part of our sinful nature that we're born with. It does not serve us, though, and it doesn't serve God. In the end, pride doesn't lead to life. We have to leave it behind as so much baggage. We have to recognize that there is nothing in and of ourselves to be proud of. There is no good inherent in us. There's no life inherent in us. Nothing in ourselves that makes us worthy of God's attention. Seeking life requires a huge helping of humility. Let us only know that God's grace is sufficient for us as we continue to Dershchai, as we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Dershchai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.